Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Chandler Rome. Chandler covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. Chandler, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. What's up, Ross? Thanks for having me, man. Well, I ask everyone this right at the uh, top of the show. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, you know, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I went to LSU, and probably the most rabid college baseball fan base is LSU, and they, they probably have the biggest college baseball following. So I grew up, like, watching college baseball more than I watched college football, just because when I was growing up, LSU football wasn't that great. Um, you know, Nick Saban didn't get to LSU until uh, I was in that third or fourth grade. So when I was growing up and Nick Saban was turning around the football program, the baseball program was always there to watch and be good. Um, so I, I grew up watching LSU baseball and that's how I kind of learned the game. I learned the game that way. And then with no real professional teams um, around Baton Rouge, you, you either de facto became a Braves fan, you became an Astros fan, or you just rooted for certain players. And I was, a, I was always a big Mark McGuire fan. I had big Mark McGuire posters in my room. So uh, I loved Mark McGuire. I loved the St. Louis Cardinals just because he was on the team. And it kind of took off from there. Um, you know, I, I still follow college baseball pretty rapidly. I'm, I'm probably one of the only people, you know, that's older than 20 that, you know, really does enjoy college baseball. But um, it's how I got my start. You know, I covered LSU baseball for about three years before I got on a major league beat. So I'm always kind of indebted and have a soft spot for college baseball. But that's how I got my that's sort of how I gravitated toward baseball. You're in an interesting position as this is your first full-time year as a beat writer, and you're covering the World Series champions. What's that been like for you? Well, it is my first full year on the beat, but, but it, it helps a little bit that I was here in 2015 as well. Um, I, got, uh, I was the MLB.com associate reporter in, in 2015 when the Astros made their first playoff run. You know, a lot of people, they probably should have eliminated the uh, – eliminated the soon-to-be World Series champion Kansas City Royals that year. But I was here for that whole year covering the team. Um, the core is pretty much the same from that from that team to this team. Um, you know, A.J. Hinch, that was his first year in 2015, and now I'm, I'm back, you know, working with him again. And um, the only players that weren't on that team that are on this team are Justin Verlander, Brian McCann, Josh Reddick, uh, Ken Giles, and maybe a couple other guys that come up every now and then. So, you know, I, I had a pre-existing relationship with um, a lot of the guys in the clubhouse. If, and I wouldn't even say relationship. I would just say they, they remembered my face. They knew who I was. You know, we had, we had talked a lot in 2015. So when I got back on the beat now, that made it a whole lot easier. Um, it, it still is a little bit daunting, obviously, your first, you know, full-time professional baseball beat being the defending World Series champions and, you know, covering a team that, quite frankly, on paper is probably better than the team that won the World Series last year. So obviously, you know, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of uh, a lot of eyes on what you write. There's a lot of, you know, th- this fan base in Houston has gotten rather rabid um, just given the last two or three years of success. So they always want anything and everything you can produce. So I'm trying to do my best. You know, people ask me all the time how, how the beat's going, how the job's going, and I, my response is always the same. I'm just trying to keep my head above water and trying not to drown and, I think I'm doing an okay job of that uh, the first two or three months of the season. The Astros are obviously coming off a World Series championship. A lot of teams tend to regress a little bit coming off the title, whether that be due to fatigue 
or just because they achieved their goal, the Astros aren't really there. They're currently leading the league in runs scored and also runs prevented. They are underachieving their Pythag record based on run differential, and they've really struggled in one-run games. It seems like they've got some bad luck there as well. Are they aware, are the players aware of the type of pace that they are on and the records they may set this season? If they are, they don't show it. Um, I think they they really have adopted this mantra of, and it's a cliched kind of overblown mantra, but they really do. I mean, they exude this, even during this previous 12-game winning streak where they went 10-0 and on a road trip, you know, they refused to sort of reflect on it. They refused to sort of place it in its in its rightful history within the franchise, the franchise that never had a 10 or more game road trip that concluded better than eight and two. And the Astros went on a 10 and 0 just romp through two really bad teams and another team in their division. That's not, that's not terrible. Um, but, but they, they surely don't want to rest on what happened last year. They're very, very forthright and outward about that. Um, you know, they broke spring training and they went into spring training sort of with the same mindset as they, they went and prepared in spring training as if they never won. And that was all you heard throughout spring training and into the first couple of weeks of the season when this was still a talking point, when it was still a, how do you avoid a world series hangover, all that sort of thing. All you kind of heard was we prep as if we never won. And, you know, I, I think that does come through very rarely other than when it is brought up or when, you know, there's a marketing promotion or when a, when a team comes through with a former player that needs to get his ring. Very rarely do you hear this team bring up what happened last year. Um, very rarely does, do they, you know, reflect back on it. Um, you, you very rarely hear references to last year. You know, they'll have to maybe a little bit think about it this week when the Blue Jays come to town because they will be giving Teoscar Hernandez a ring. He, he played a very sparing way for the team last year. And then Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner will be getting a, ring, a World Series ring during the upcoming series against the Blue Jays. So it's those sort of games where you, it's, you sort of remind yourself this team won last year, but inside the clubhouse, they have completely really forgotten about I don't know if forgotten about it's the right word, but they have without a doubt moved on. Um, they're ready to, they want to repeat and it's, they have made no bones about that. They want to become the first team since the Yankees to win back-to-back world series championships. And, and they are, they are cognizant that they are positioned to do so. They're cognizant that, you know, they have the best rotation in baseball. AJ Hinch says that pretty unabashedly, pretty frequently, you know, he, he, he doesn't mince words about that, that their rotation is the best in baseball. And then, you know, the bats, like you mentioned, um, early in the season, it was the bottom of the order, not doing a bunch and by and large, making the top of the order to look a little bit sluggish compared to last year's output. But you've seen a lot more, uh, especially with this road trip, this past road trip, you saw the bottom of the order come alive. Marvin Gonzalez, Evan Gaddis and, and Yuli Gurriel really picking it up from the bottom of that order to take a little bit of pressure off the top four, Springer, Correa, Altuve, and Bregman. You've seen, you've seen the entire lineup sort of gel together, and the rotation's been great all year. Um, they, they've been superb all year. They have the best rotation in baseball. You know, they, early in the season, they were, they were achieving almost unsustainable standards of excellence. And you've seen it, reg- and when I say regress, I don't mean to say that they've gotten worse, but, I mean, you're not seeing every starter go out and take a perfect game into the sixth inning because there was literally a, a run earlier this season where one turn through the rotation 
every single all five men took a perfect game into the sixth inning and that that sort of success is unattainable it's it's unsustainable and you know we've seen some guys have pickup starts here and there Dallas Keuchel had two kind of bad outings in a row Charlie Morton had an outing so bad that only three other major league pitchers had ever put up as bad in numbers as he did. So you've seen them regress a little bit on the mound, but when I say regress, they, they still are just dominant. And, you know, the offense has, has done enough and, and come together at the right time to kind of pick that up. What's also impressive is that their pitching staff in particular has remained extraordinarily healthy. I think they've used the fewest amount of players in general, but certainly the fewest amount of pitchers this season among any other team, any other team in a while, really. How are they able to keep their pitchers healthy? Or is that just a fluke? It may be part fluke. It may be just part that, um, you know, they're not having to overburden the bullpen. Um, They've only had... I think Tony Sipp went on the DL earlier in the season with a back issue, and Joe Smith is on the DL right now with some right elbow inflammation. And Ken Giles, he never went on the DL, but Ken Giles had a little bit of a back issue in Seattle earlier in the year. But other than that, they have been extraordinarily healthy. Um, all five starters, uh, I don't, they have not had a starter miss a spot in the rotation yet, whether it be for rest, whether it be for injury, whether it be for fatigue, whatever. I, I just think, you know, part of it is a fluke. I don't think the Astros, you can never control when a guy gets hurt. I think you certainly can try to prevent it. You certainly cannot, you know, tax these guys so early in the season. And you did see that. You did see that even when these guys were pitching really, really well, A.J. Hinch was, was very cognizant of pitch counts in April and May that he didn't want to, you know, get a guy out there in an unnecessary game throwing – 115, 120 pitches when, you know, he's got a rested bullpen and he's cognizant of the long haul that this team seems destined for. So I think part of it's been a fluke, but I think part of it has been that, you know, they didn't over, they didn't overburden the staff early in the season. Um, Justin Verlander threw 122 pitches last night, and it was the most by an Astros starters in a regular season game since 2015. So, um, you know, last night was sort of an anomaly a little bit. Verlander had to grind a little bit. And A.J. Hinch knows this rotation um, better than anybody. Obviously, he's, you know, really connected with them. And he understands when a guy needs to to come out or if a guy can handle a a long outing and with the off days coming up, how it sets up. So um, I think pitch count management's been one thing, but I also think it's just been a lot that – that they've had very few, if any, injuries to deal with to, you know, star players. On something that might be just related to bad luck, they do have a poor record in one-run games. Is that just luck? Is that small sample size? Is there something else there? Part of it is luck. Part of it is, you know, the closer role is still unsettled. And it, part of it is by design that, they that you know, A.J. Hinch for now is kind of relying upon who's hot, who's pitching well, who's a guy that can um, come in and, and had a track record in the last three, four games of pitching. Well, he doesn't, you know, he hasn't had a consistent, reliable guy that he can go to game after game after game. He's had it in spurts, but he hasn't had it. Um, he hasn't had it for a full season for a little bit there. It was Ken Giles. And then Ken Giles gave up a massive three run home run to Gary Sanchez at home and punched himself in the face, walking off the field and it was the implosion that, you know, kind of dominated headlines around here for a week amid a really good run for this team. All people could talk about was punching in the face. And 
Dr. Rondone has, uh, and he had a, they were going to in save situations during this road trip, during this snow road trip, he got three saves, but then you look last night and they bring him in in the eighth inning of a tie game and he gives up the go ahead run. Um, so I, I think the back end of the bullpen is unsettled. Um, I don't think it's as, um, I don't think it's as dire maybe as the fans will make it out to be. I think when either Rondone or Ken Giles is on, they're really good, but we haven't seen them on in in consistent spurts of weeks at a time here to make you feel comfortable. Um, so I, I think that partly has something to do with it. And then, you know, I, I kind of juxtapose the Astros record one run games and the Mariners, you know, how well they're doing in one run games. They've won what, like 22 one run games. Now, part of that is luck. Part of that is they have Edwin Diaz, who's probably the best closer in baseball that nobody's talking about. He's not Araldis Chapman. He's not Craig Kimbrell, but he leads the major league in saves. He's probably the best closer in baseball. Those two things are correlated, that, that the Mariners have a guy that they can go to in a tight game to get that to get those three outs and not worry about it. The Astros right now, they don't have that guy consistently. They'll have him at some points. They won't have him at other points. So uh, I think part of it's luck, and I think part of it, frankly, is that the back end of the bullpen is a little bit unsettled. Do you expect the Astros to target a high-end closer, whether it be Brad Hand or Rossiel Iglesias at the trade deadline? I would expect that they go and aid the bullpen. I think every contending team, you know, maybe minus the Yankees uh, and, and minus the teams that, you know, have stated very good bullpens. I think every team wants to improve their bullpen. And I, and I think the Astros are, are no different. I think they certainly will target who is out there. They'll target the best guy available. Um, but, but as we saw last year, you know, I think people kind of forget before the Verlander deal, the Astros didn't, the Astros had gone and went by the trade deadline and nothing had really happened. And a lot of people were wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know, Dallas Keuchel pretty pointedly called out the front office. Um, uh, and, you know, the front office didn't want to part with certain guys. Um, you know, Kyle Tucker was a guy that was asked about in pretty much every deal and the Astros were not going to part with him. And there's and Kyle Tucker's still in this farm system and there, there are different guys that, you know, they don't want to part with. And I don't think they'll go out and, you know, just completely tear up their farm system at the expense of, you know, one guy with two months or three months of control. I, I think certainly they need bullpen help. And I think that's the one area on this team where if you look at it, they that is the glaring need. And maybe with the way A.J. Hinch managed to play off last year where, you know, two of his one or two of his starters in this greatest rotation in baseball may end up being in the bullpen in the playoffs, and that's going to help as well. Um, but but certainly, I expect if they address anything at the trade deadline, it will certainly be the bullpen. What is the state of the Astros farm system? I know you do some work for Baseball America as well. Do they have enough to go get what they want at the deadline? I think they do. I think they they still have um, they still have one of the best farm systems in baseball. I think they've maybe come off from a top to perch of, you know, having the unquestioned best one in baseball, but they still, you know, for a while there in the beginning, in the middle of April and the middle of May, they had the highest winning percentage among any, uh, among any organization across all the full season affiliates. Um, their triple a Fresno team is, is pretty salty. Um, you know, the guys that are in that lineup, you know, quite frankly, there's two or three of them that, you know, don't deserve to be in triple A. There's there's guys in that Fresno lineup that 
quite frankly, you know, are major league players that the Astros either have no spot for or, you know, defensively they're just a little bit, you know, they, they, they can't um, – they can't find the place for them defensively here. So uh, I certainly think they've got the, the they've got the wealth of, of prospects and they've got the wealth of tools to go out and get what they want and still hold on to the guys that they consider untouchable. I would imagine Forrest Whitley, Kyle Tucker are guys that, you know, are fall into that untouchable category. There are guys that, you know, they certainly don't want to part with. But there are other guys there that, that I don't know if are just as good, but guys that are very, very um, sustainable and very feasible options to 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 make a, a big deal work. Coming into the this season, obviously they just won the World Series. Altuve was the MVP. What did he want to work on in spring training? What did he try to do to get himself better? And do you feel like he's done that? Uh, I don't think it was anything physical. I think maybe I think when Jose Altuve got his extension, when he got his seven year deal, and it really sort of um, you know, told the clubhouse and told everyone that he was in this for the long haul. And, you know, I think if anything, he's maybe worked on his leadership and, and maybe how to be the guy in the clubhouse. You know, obviously Justin Verlander carries a, a big weight in that clubhouse. You know, he's a guy that sort of transfixes it. And, um, you know, a lot of people in that clubhouse gravitate toward him, but, but, you know, he's a starting pitcher and, and Jose Altuve is kind of, turned into that guy for the position players. Um, you know, there was an incident earlier this year in Cleveland where Lance McCullough Jr., you know, 24-year-old, you know, very emotional guy, very, um, very excitable, you know, pitches with a lot of emotion on the mound. He, uh, he showed up Yuli Gurriel on the field. Um, Yuli, Yuli at first base made an error behind uh, McCullers, and, you know, Lance was very visceral in his reaction. He kind of threw his hands up and, kind of snapped the ball back when Yuli tossed it back to him and going off the field in plain view of the cameras, Jose Altuve let Lance McCullers have it and held him accountable. And, you know, we got into the clubhouse afterward and, and Jose Altuve downplayed the incident, but, you know, Lance McCullers was as contrite as possible, you know, came forward and said that Jose Altuve, you know, reminded him that of his place and that, you know, he's not 21 anymore and he's got to be a guy that, that sort of, that sort of acts a little bit better. And, you know, to see that interaction and to see how that unfolded, I don't think that's something Jose Altuve does, you know, two or three years ago. I think, I don't know, it's not just that he got the extension that, that made this possible, but he's coming into his own, he's finding his voice, and he's becoming not only just a, you know, every, there's two types of leaders. There's a lead by example, and there's a kind of a guy that can rah-rah kind of lead, you know, vocally a little bit. And I think Jose Altuve is becoming a little bit of both of those. So I don't think it was really anything on the field. I, I think we we kind of know that Jose Altuve is is really really good on the field, and there's not much he needs to improve. There's not much he needs to work on. I think I, I think that's been pretty well stated. But uh, I think his leadership and kind of the way he carries himself around the clubhouse and kind of holding others accountable and kind of self policing the team. I think I, I think that is probably the biggest leap that uh, you've seen from Jose Altuve. Justin Verlander is a really interesting guy because he was on a Hall of Fame pace when he was in Detroit, and he was one of the best pitchers in the game. And then he got hurt, and he sort of lost his stuff a little bit. He wasn't uh, throwing at the same velocity. Nothing was as crisp, but he gained it back. He wasn't a guy that learned new pitches, seemingly, or had to learn how to pitch differently. He regained his stuff. 
And that's really difficult to do. Has he talked at all about how he was able to do that? I think the one thing that he always says when he has a really good start and people kind of ask him to summarize his entire really Astros resurgence is that he's processing information now better than he ever has in his career. And what he says he means by that is, you know, just the fact that he's when he says processing information, he means that he's able to regurgitate it and repeat his delivery, repeat his mechanics. And he's doing it at such a high level and, He's so prepared. He's, he, and that's the one thing AJ Hinch always says about him um, is that he's one of the most prepared human beings he's ever been around. And when you see him in the clubhouse before starts, I mean, he's got his headphones on and he's buried in a computer. Him and him and whoever's catching him that day, whether it's Brian McCann or Max Stassi, they're buried into a computer. They're going hitter by hitter. They're they've got pencils, papers everywhere around and getting everything done up to the last minute they can. And I think that preparation coupled with his kind of acknowledgement that this is the fastest and probably best he's ever processed information in his long career leads to him being able to repeat his delivery, repeat his mechanics. And the stuff is just, I mean, like you mentioned, the stuff is back. The stuff, I mean, the velocity is back to kind of where we knew the Justin Verlander velocity to be Um, this, this staff, the whole sort of takes uh, one of its bread and butter pitches is an elevated four seam fastball. And he's able to get that by guys, you know, with ease right now. And, you know, his slider, he, he's had inconsistent command of his slider this year, but when the slider's on, he's almost unhittable because he's a guy that, you know, when you pair that fastball with the, with the kind of slider and the action he gets on that slider. It's, um, it's pretty daunting. And, you know, I, I think certainly this is a, this is an Astros team in a front office. It's very closed off, very secretive. Um, they don't like to reveal much. Jeff Luna sort of said as much uh, a couple of days ago when they announced his promotion and extension. So they're never going to get into the specifics of what they're doing or, or how they've gotten Justin Verlander to kind of find his old self. So we can only rely on really on what Justin Verlander tells us. And I, that's, you know, the main thing is that he's processing information probably about as, as good as he's ever done in his career. Are the other members of the pitching staff looking at that much video, and are they using analytics as much as Verlander is? I think everyone has. I think there are guys that maybe do it a little less frequently or less intense than Verlander. Um, you know, Garrett Cole's a guy that, that likes the video. You know, you see him before his starts doing the same thing as Verlander. Um, you know, and, and all five of them. Um, I, I think they're, they, they use video maybe to their heart's desire there's some that you know maybe don't rely on it as much and there's some that you know they'll they'll tell you right off that they spend their entire pre-start and post-start sort of routine looking at the video so uh, i think the video is certainly something that's um kind of enveloped the astros organization not even just the astros organization everybody's organization um but i i think all five of them use it um i i don't think maybe it's as it's as leaned on upon as maybe a guy like Verlander or Cole, but I, I think they all use it to their own degree. When Carlos Correa was picked and when he was coming up through the minors, he was unfortunately compared to A-Rod. And the idea that he's going to become the next A-Rod, I think is a lot to put on a 18-year-old kid. And he's been so good, but he hasn't been as good as A-Rod was when A-Rod was his age. Are people okay with that? Some guys come up with so much expectations that no matter what they do, they can't live up to them. 
And I think about Correa. What if he's not A-Rod? What if he's Barry Larkin and he still ends up having a Hall of Fame career? Will people be okay with that? Yeah, I think as long as the Astros keep winning. <laughs> I mean, I mean, winning cures everything. And, uh, and you know, the pressures of being a 1-1, you got to remember there's two 1-1s there's two in that Astros clubhouse and Garrett Cole and now um, Carlos Correa. Um, and, and for a while there, Garrett Cole probably wasn't fulfilling that sort of, you know, the, the pre the pre call up hype that was placed on him. When you're when you're the first overall pick in the major league baseball draft, you're right, there's almost kind of un, unquenchable hype around you. And, and Carlos Correa has probably not had the offensive season um this year that maybe he thought, but you know, you look at his slash line and he's still slugging almost five hundred and he's hitting two seventy. I mean it's not a bad year by any stretch of the imagination. Um his defense has gotten uh, not not as if it wasn't good, but his defense this year has been pretty unbelievable. He set a new Astros franchise record with a 70-game errorless streak, and he attributes it all to he, he and Joe Espada, the Astros' new bench coach, worked on his first step and kind of refining his ready position in the, in the milliseconds before the pitch is thrown. He's gotten better in getting into his ready position and knowing where his first step's going to be, and it allows him to move side to side, move laterally better. You got to remember, this is a this is a guy that stands six foot four and he's playing shortstop. You know, he's not a you don't see these tall kind of broad guys playing shortstop, and he's done he's done at an elite level, especially this year. So, I, I think Carlos is certainly not a guy that will get down on himself and he's certainly not a guy that puts undue pressure on himself to be who everyone expects him to be. I think he's cognizant of the lineup he has around him. I think he knows that Jose Altuve hits in front of him. I think he knows that, you know, when this lineup's humming as well as it is, he's got a guy like Evan Gaddis behind him who's driving in practically every every run the Astros score right now. Um Yuli Gurriel's doing well behind him too. So he understands that this he doesn't have to carry this team. And, and neither does Jose Altuve, neither does, you know, anybody. I, I think this team is so well-rounded and has so few holes and has so many, has such depth that they don't, they don't need to have a Carlos Correa having an A-Rod type career or season. I'm sure he'd love to have those numbers, but uh, I, I think he's cognizantly doesn't have to have those sort of unrealistic and un maybe attainable statistics that people want him to have he doesn't have to have those for the team to have success what are your expectations for this team the rest of the way i think certainly right now um in the middle in the middle of that streak and this is not take anything away from the 12 game streak of the 10 game the 10 and 0 road trip but i think when you looked maybe when you looked at this part of the schedule before the season or even a couple of weeks into the season you sort of had a feeling that this would be a really good stretch for the Astros. I mean, they played just two awful teams on the road, and the Royals and the Rangers, and then the Athletics are – the A's are fine. They're not, a, they're not a great team, but they're not a horrible team like those other two teams. And then they come home for this 10-game homestand. They get the Royals again. They, they have the Rays uh, this series, and then they have the Blue Jays coming in. So they don't play a team with a winning record right now. They, they do not play a team that currently has a winning record until after the all-star break. So I, I certainly suspect that they'll sustain this sort of torrid level of play till before the all-star break. 
um, barring an injury, barring just something unforeseen happening, you would imagine that they keep this sort of, you know, they, they roll off seven or eight wins in a row before a loss. And then you certainly would suspect that that happens before the all-star break. Um, now, after the all-star break, obviously you, 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 you sort of get back into the teeth of your division. You've got a, a series with the angels right after the all-star break. You see Seattle a ton in, in July and, those meetings with Seattle are going to be interesting, just given that they don't seem to want to fade away. Um, they're in the they're in the rough part of their schedule right now. Obviously, they're in New York for four games, and they'll go to Boston. So, it, it, I certainly do think that the Astros will head into the All Star break on a on a massive high because this is kind of the weak part of their schedule, and they're doing what good teams do against bad teams and they're, they're winning. And, you know, I had somebody tell me this a couple of weeks ago, you know, you don't make the play. It was when the Astros were in, in New York and, you know, they, they, they lost a couple of close games in New York and somebody told me, they said, you know, teams don't make the playoffs based on what you do against the Yankees and the Red Sox. They said, you make the playoffs based on what you do against the bottom feeders, against the Rangers, against the Rays, against the Blue Jays, against the Royals. And, and, you know, you're seeing right now that the Astros are feasting on that. They, they, they're feasting on the bad teams they play, and they're playing well. They're getting a lot of confidence, and they're going to be doing that really until the All-Star break. You mentioned earlier that you still follow college baseball. The College World Series is in progress and nearing its conclusion. What's the main storyline to watch out there before it wraps up? I think the first thing you have to watch is Mississippi State. They're, they're probably the best story in sports that probably no one knows about um mississippi state had to fire its head coach after the first three games of the season andy canazero former yankee scout was uh was played had a cup of coffee with the yankees in the in the late 90s early 2000s they had to fire andy canazero after the first three games of the year because he was conducting an extramarital affair uh out while on university time and quite frankly not 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 coaching the team he was he was too invested in uh, some other things going on in his life, and you know was kind of leading a, another life and not not coaching the team. So they fired him after three games, and they promoted Gary Henderson, who's a kind of a college baseball veteran, had been around for a long time. They they promoted him to interim head coach to sort of you know get him through the year, and he's done nothing but turn the team around. They started SEC play at two and seven, and now they're a win away from being in the college world series finals. They're on an unbelievable tear right now. Um, they, they, the guys they have on the team are maybe not huge college, or maybe huge major league prospects. The guy they started on Friday night is Connor Pilkington. He got picked in the third or fourth round. He's probably their best, you know, draft drafted prospect, but, just the, the turnaround that they've had and the story and kind of how they're riding this wave is sort of what makes college baseball great. You know, this is not a team filled with a ton of talent, if you will. This is a team just full of scrappy grinders that, that like playing baseball and that are riding an, an unbelievable high and just sort of what they've overcome this whole year has been nothing short of incredible. And um, they're, they're certainly, if you're into a feel good story and if you're into watching something that, I think if they make if they make the College World Series finals, um, that's going to be getting a lot more attention. Um, so maybe you can hop on the Mississippi State train before they start really getting a lot more national attention. But certainly, you know, firing your coach three games into a season and then starting 
SEC played two and seven under an interim head coach. And, oh, yeah, they gave up 20 runs in their first game of the NCAA tournament. They lost the first game, their first game of the NCAA tournament 20 to 10. And since then, they've just they, – I don't think they've lost uh, an NCAA tournament game since. They've made it to the College World Series semifinals. They have to, they have to be defeated twice in order not to make it to the College World Series finals. So certainly I would, I would if, if you see on TV that Mississippi State's playing and you got nothing to do, certainly tune into that because they've been one of the – they've been the best story in college baseball. But if they make the College World Series finals, they'll certainly be one of the best stories in sports this year. You've been listening to Chandler Rome. Chandler covers the Astros for the Houston Chronicle. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Chandler underscore Rome. Chandler, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. All right. Thank you.